Happy Sabbath. <sighs> okay, so I'm going to share something with you guys. Um, you know, I, I think that it's hard for me to preach if I'm like not feeling it. So I'm just going to be really open about, you know, that's like usually I feel like I'm pretty open with you guys as I share. Wow, there's a lot of people here today. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Um, so uh, Loma Linda is the fourth church that I've served at. Um, and one of the churches I served at uh, a few years back um, was this wonderful, beautiful, lovely church um, in Arizona. Okay? And this church, it's like, I have nothing bad to say about this church. It's like so healthy. It's so, I love that church. But that church, the three years that I served there was a very dark time in my life. And the reason it was such a dark time in my life is because I did not feel a sense of community there. And what I mean by this is I had friends. Um, my best friends were, uh, my first best friend was a mother of four in her 40s. Um, she's awesome. I was like not in my, I had just turned 30. Um, my other best friend was a seven-year-old. <laughs> okay? um, and so in this community, I lacked people my own age, and I also lacked some like people who I felt like I could fully be myself around. I felt like everywhere I went in Arizona, I'm always Pastor Junie. Right? I'm never just Junie. Uh, this, uh, this series that we're doing, that we, just, that we started a few weeks ago, is called the New Balance series. And if you guys could, I don't have a clicker today, so thanks. Um, I've been given the fun, easy topic of relationships today. Um, I don't know why I keep getting topics that they're like things that I personally need to work on. Like the last thing that I was given was like time management. I struggle with time management. And then now um, Pastor Richard has lovingly given, me, lovingly given me the topic of relationships. I struggle with relationships. Um, since coming to Loma Linda, uh, it is, you would think like there's so many people here. This is like one of the biggest churches. Um, there's so many people here. But my experience in Loma Linda has not been that much different than my experience in Arizona in the sense that it has been extremely lonely. And when I was struggling in Arizona, I was talking to a friend of mine and he kind of posed this question. He was like, wait, like, why do you think that everything's going to be good? Why do you think that things are going to be well when you don't have a community? And I was like, well, I have everything else that I need. And, you know, I'm here because God called me here. And he was like, yeah, but Junie, think about it this way. In the same way that you need food and you need water and you need, like, a place to live and you need your basic needs, don't you think community is one of those things? And honestly, no one had ever, like, like, I had never considered that before. And I was like, yes. And um, he was like, yeah. So, uh, 
even though my topic is relationships today, I felt like the way God led me is um, to talk about community, and so that's what I'm going to do. So let's pray before we get into it. Holy Spirit, um, this is your time now to do whatever you want to do, and um, I feel a little off this morning, but um, I just ask that you will speak through me, that you will hide me in the shadow of the cross, and whatever is relevant and whatever is good and whatever comes from you, um, just shoot that into the hearts and minds of everyone here. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Sebastian Younger, a journalist and author of the book Tribe, he writes about this strange phenomenon that happened in early American history. Okay, so this sermon this week, it's a little nerdy. Um, you, I'm sorry, you have no choice. Uh, so in the 18th century and um, up and down the East Coast, there were two groups of people living side by side. You had the Native Americans living the way they had been living for years and years um, since the Stone Age, not much difference. And then you had the colonists, uh, mostly white, mostly British, who were living at the peak of Western civilization. And what was recorded from this time was that a bunch of English settlers, a bunch of European settlers, they were deserting their European like fellow colonists to go and live with the Native Americans. Okay? But the interesting thing was, it was as recorded, it was just a one-way street, right? There was never Native Americans who were like willingly coming and living with the, uh, the Europeans. It was always one way, the Europeans going to live with the Native Americans. Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to his friend in 1753 about colonists who were captured in a raid, and then they were later saved and brought back to their colony. Okay? This is what he writes. Though they were ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they, beca- they became disgusted with our manner of life and they take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. Interesting, okay. Another early immigrant, uh, this is a French immigrant he wrote in 1782, Okay, this language is not PC, but this is like really old. Okay, so this is not my language, it's his language. He said, thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no example of even one of these Aborigines having from choice become European. And this Frenchman's understanding of this phenomenon was, there must be in their social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to anything to be boasted among us. And the point that Younger makes in his book is that early on in American history, the seeds of what we now call radical individualism were planted and they began to poison the culture of America and the West as a whole, but specifically our country. Um, French diplomat Alexis uh, de Tocqueville, after his tour through America in 1831, he named extremist individualism as the defining American trait and said that if left unchecked, it would spell the destruction of humanity. Okay, what am I talking about? So this idea, this um, draw, this um, praise, this uh, like individualism, it's the best. This impulse in the West, like it kept going until World War II. 
And then the war is actually what brought like, the Western world together. And there's this famous study done by a Canadian psychologist on the London Blitz in 1940 and 41, the Nazi bombings um, in Britain. And what this study found was that the rates of depression in the city of London went down during the Nazi bombings, and that when all the bombings were over, the de- levels of depression, it went back up to normal levels, which is kind of weird. And his interpretation was that not that like, humans have an odd like, love for Nazi bombs, but the sense of community, the way it brought all of London together, is what made the difference. Um, cities are notorious for loneliness because you live and you're surrounded by tens of thousands, or in London's case, millions of people, but most of them are strangers. Cities are full of people who are just passing through, who are transient, they're multicultural, there aren't many deep, long-term relationships, and so, so, so many people in the city feel lonely, but something about the Blitz and the war brought the West as a whole together. But since then, individualism has been running wild, and there's been a rapid decline in community. We look at the church, and we look at church attendance, for example, and um, since the 1950s, church attendance is down by half. And it's easy to read that as like, oh, maybe it's about secularism, and maybe it's about the decline of the church. But what, it's not just about church attendance. Um, According to Harvard professor Robert Putnam, it's not just church attendance that's in decline, it's any and all forms of community, actually. Um, Especially anything that holds any, that requires any kind of commitment. So he mentions the loss in membership in organizations like the PTA, um, labor unions, Lions Club, Elks Lodge, um, volunteers of the Red Cross, like Boy Scouts, the country club, things that used to be so normal, so common, they're all down, they're all declined in numbers. And last year in the UK, if you guys can show the next slide, Theresa May, the former prime minister, um, she made the news when she appointed a loneliness minister, okay? The the world's first loneliness minister based on a study where nearly 9 million Brits, nearly 20% of the population, they were identified as lonely. And in her statement to the press, she said, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. But this isn't just a European problem. In the U.S., rates of loneliness are actually much higher. Uh, They've doubled since the 1980s, and 35% of Americans report that they are chronically lonely. Only 8% report having a conversation with a neighbor over the last year. In 1984, the average American had three confidants, and a recent report said that 25% of Americans have zero And in a famous interview with the Harvard Review, our former Surgeon General, uh, Dr. Murthy, he said, during my eight years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. And like, honestly, like, I know I spent quite a lot of time trying to convince you guys of this, but I don't actually need to convince you of this because you already know this. A lot of us, you're experiencing it. A lot of us are experiencing it firsthand. I don't need to convince you that Americans are lonely. I don't need to convince you that people in Loma Linda are lonely. With loneliness comes a wide range of health problems. One study found that it's worse, 
loneliness is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It has a greater impact on your lifespan than obesity does. Multiple studies have tied it to heart disease, dementia, very much so to anxiety and depression. But health of mind and body aside, the health of our society is also at risk. So ironically, individualism, it leads to loneliness, but loneliness is an odd, in an odd way, it leads to something called tribalism. And one way of understanding tribalism is like, it's like the dark twin of community. Okay, so community is based on mutual love. Tribalism is based on mutual hate. Community is about who and what we are for. Tribalism is about what we are against or who we're against. Community is about generosity and honor and celebration of the other and how different we are, whereas tribalism is this zero-sum battle for scarce resources where it's kill or be killed. And we see evidence of this all over the news lately on a regular basis. Are you guys sufficiently depressed? Okay, yeah, me too. Okay, all right. Our social lives our relationships, our communities, we lack balance. And I think many, if not most, if not all of us can relate to this. And that's literally why we're doing this series. It's because we are looking for a new way to balance. We're looking at Jesus' way of balance. And I had to believe and trust as I prepared for this message that there would be something that we find in Jesus' life and in his teachings that would show us how to find healthy balance in relationships, that would show us how to find a life where we can flourish and thrive in a deep and meaningful web of relationships, not just shallow ones. And this is what I found. Uh, We're going to go into what scripture says. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, God's word says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Some translations, they say, I will make you into fishers of people, fishers of men. Now, like, to be honest, like for a long time, I read that as like, Jesus, like, that's like not a good it's not funny. Like, your jokes, I, like, expect more of you. Like, it's not even a good pun, like, just because they're fishermen. But it's actually, he wasn't trying to be corny. He wasn't trying to be cheesy. He's, like, way smarter and funnier than that. Fishers of people was a first century idiom for a great rabbi or teacher who would capture the minds and imaginations of the hearers. So Jesus is basically saying to these guys, hey, if you follow me, I'm going to make you like me. I'm going to help you to become brilliant and wise teachers who will capture the minds of your generation. Which is why in verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately Right then and there, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So very early on in this story, you see that Jesus, um, for him, to follow Jesus is to live in community. Okay? Jesus did not call one disciple singular, but disciples, plural. 
And as Jesus continues, as the story goes on, he continues to call people to join, not just join in following him, but join in his community. Next story, Matthew chapter 9. Um, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Because if you're a tax collector, you're friends with other tax collectors, right? And so that's him, that's them, Matthew and his friends, the tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus' disciples. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, dude, how come your teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And this is a quote from the prophet Hosea. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what Matthew shares in this biography of Jesus is that there's a spectrum of maturity in the people of Jesus's community, right? You have good Torah-observing Jewish boys like James and John and Peter and Andrew, and then you have like tax collectors and sinners like Matthew, and you have like Judas. And you could maybe make the point that Jesus wasn't as concerned about level of maturity as he was with just level of commitment. Next story, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his disciples, called his 12 disciples to him and gave them, okay, note it's not just to Peter, just to John, the one he loved, but gave them as a community authority to drive out impure, impure spirits to heal every disease and sickness. And then there's a list of the 12, okay? Um, Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, this is a very interesting mishmash of people in this community, and we don't have time right now to go super deep into this, so I'm just going to look at two of the people that Matthew has a moniker for, like a label next to. Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot. Now, the zealots, of which Simon was a part of, was this right-wing Jewish insurgency group that would conduct, like, violent terrorist activities on unsuspecting Roman soldiers in a quest for Israel's independence. So you have Simon the Zealot, okay? And then you have Matthew, who's literally on the payroll of Rome. Can you imagine what their first few hangouts were like? It's like, they, this was not like a loving, like, oh, uh, like, kumbaya time, okay? Um, and just... This is just two people. There were a bunch of other polarizing issues amongst them. Last story we're going to look at, Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, okay, that's James and John, they, she came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, okay, so this is like a really, really dramatic scene, okay, think Korean drama. She's literally on her knees, okay, with a putak, right, like with a favor, to ask Jesus for a favor. And Jesus, so graciously, he's like, what is it that you want? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, we don't know exactly what she's thinking, but we can assume that in her mind, it's like, Jesus is the Messiah. That means he's going to beat back the Roman Empire. He's going to establish the Israel um, Empire, and then he's going to take over. So she's like, Hey, um, Jesus, 
She like, you know, maybe brought an envelope. She's like, Jesus, you know, thank you so much for everything you've been doing for my sons. <sighs> so much sugo, like you've been doing so much, but um, I just have one request. And he's like, you know, what's going on? And she's like, so when you become king of everything, can you just make one of my boys your vice president and the other your secretary of state? Something like that. And then Jesus, again, so gracious. This is how he responds. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And for Jesus, cup is the metaphor for his suffering. And in his mind, leadership in the kingdom of God is a form of suffering and love. And, and it says, we can, they answered. So notice now, James and John, John, they like pipe in. So they've been like sitting there like, okay, mom, like, mom, like what we talked about. So she's like, she like says her thing and then Jesus is like, I don't know, like can they, and then they're like, we can, we're ready. Like we've just been here like waiting. And Jesus says to them, you know, you will indeed drink from my cup. And both of them were killed for their faith in Jesus. He says, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Let's keep going. Verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, so now we get a little more of the picture. We realize that all of this, this like this Korean drama scene, it's been happening out of earshot from the other disciples. So there was a scheme here, right? Between the two brothers and their mommy to get Jesus away so that they could talk about this. And when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant, with the two brothers, okay? Indignant is Bible for a word that I'm not allowed to say here, okay? They were very, very mad. And can you imagine, like, I, like, I, I feel bad to Peter, but like, he's always like my go-to, like who I imagine. I'm imagining Peter fuming. It's like, it's not only did you guys go behind our backs, but you got your mommy to ask for you? Like, seriously, you don't even have the guts to say it yourself. You make your mom do the dirty work. Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, you know that outside of our community, it's all about power dynamics. It's about strong versus weak. It's about power and oppression. Verse 26 says, not so with you. That's not how we do it in our community. He says, instead, he says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must fight for what you believe in. No, that's not what he says. He says, you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Meaning, to live in this new community under the rule of God, to live by a whole other set of relational dynamics in the world, is to live not with power, but with love as your center point. And what Jesus is sharing in this passage is that in his community, his disciples are training and are practicing to become like Jesus, a self-sacrificial servant who does everything in love. 
So we're going to just take a moment, make a few observations about the stories we looked at. Number one, Jesus, he lived in a community. Okay? He was not a monk off in the mountains by himself. And to the call to follow Jesus was also at the same time a call to engage in his community. We cannot follow Jesus alone. Number two, his community had differences and issues. They got mad at each other. They were at odds with each other. They didn't like each other at times. It was messy. Number three, the end goal of his community was to grow and mature his followers into people who were like him, people who lived and served in love. And this picture that we see here is maybe different than what you imagine when you think about the word community. Because there's, I think, a few misconceptions we have when we think about community, okay? Two things. Community is not about connectivity, okay? We've never been more connected than any other generation before us, but we've also never been so lonely. We think it's enough to be connected through social media. It's like, oh, yeah, I know what all my friends are up to. Like, they went to Korean barbecue yesterday. Um, oh, last week they went camping. And we think that because we have that connectivity, like, we know what's going on in each other's lives, but we don't, right? Because we are not engaging in meaningful conversations as much. Secondly, we mistake community with, we mistake chemistry with community. People who just get us, right? The sad reality of our lives is that most Some to most, if not all of our friends in our life, who really, really understand us, who really like share the same interests as us, same sense of humor, love the same foods. The sad reality is that a lot of times those friends, they are not a part of our community because they live far away from us and we're not doing day-to-day life with them. Um, Merriam-Webster describes community as people with common interests living in a particular area. So it's people that you live by. Community, by definition, is people that you live by or you're near on a regular basis. But it's this idea of common interests, right? That's why CrossFit is actually like a legit form of community and like why I felt like so many of my friends were like really obsessed with it. Um, Pokemon Go, another form of community because it's like something like that everyone in that place that lives together, they have in common. They go raiding together. Okay. It's people you live by who you have something in common with. So for us, what is our community? It's people we live by here in Loma Linda, Redlands, Colton. And what do we have in common? For us this morning, it's Jesus. Okay. It's not Not everyone here is part of the health field. Not everyone here is Korean. Not everyone here is in the same life stage, not in the same tax bracket. It's Jesus. And community is right at the center of everything that Jesus was all about. You can make a strong case if you look through the Gospels that Jesus did two things very regularly. Okay? The two most important things he did were he spent time in silence and solitude, and then he spent time in community. Okay? And when you look through the Gospels, there's like this pattern that emerges. He goes and he's alone in silence and solitude. He retreats away to a quiet place. And then he goes right back into community. And this was the r- rhythm of his life. And for a lot of us, our rhythm looks more like this. We're scared to go all the way into silence and solitude. Okay? We actually don't like absolute silence where there's nothing to distract us. No headphones, no music, no podcasts, no shows. Because then we're alone with our thoughts, and that's scary, and we don't like that. Because then we're just 
laying our soul bare before God. And then we're also scared to go fully into community. Friends, great. Hanging out, love that. But to go all the way to a place of openness and vulnerability, when you show and express who you fully are, we're scared of that. We're scared to express emotional and psychological vulnerability. A few months ago, I ran into someone I used to do Bible studies with back at UCLA when they were in undergrad. And I was telling her, like, hey, come visit me. Like, you live in Loma? Come visit me at Loma Korean. She was like, uh, okay, like, I'll come visit. And then she proceeded to tell me that. She's like, pastor, it's just so much easier to go to a different church on Saturday morning because at Loma Korean, you have to, like, dress up. If you don't dress up, people judge you. And I was like, people judge you? She's like, yeah. I was like, oh, so they've been judging me. Um, So (laughs) some people are scared to even try to approach community here, even with everything covered up, with their best face forward. So the idea of bearing it all seems like not possible. So instead, we hover around something that psychiatrist M. Scott Peck calls pseudo-community. We come to church, we have Adventist friends, maybe some of us are even plugged in a small group, but we hold back a core part of who we really are. And there's all sorts of reasons for this, but I'm going to touch on three. The first is individualism, which I already talked about. Okay? Um, the second is idealism. Okay? So idealism. Um, I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know why my sermon is so long. So I'm going to try to cut it. So idealism. I'm just going to give you the main point. Okay, this is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's uh, book, Life Together. And he wrote this in 1938 during his experience of living in a community of 150 people as he taught an underground seminary that he set up to fight Nazi corruption in the Lutheran church. And it was later closed down by the Gestapo and he was later arrested and put to death by Nazi Germany. And in his book on living together, he writes, can we put it up real quick? Okay, the sooner this shock of disillusionment, meaning the sooner you face the reality that community the way Jesus did it, It wasn't always awesome. It was messy. It was hard work. It's not ideal. And people do dumb and bad things. The sooner that you realize that you get over this disillusionment, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Okay. Um, In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, what he talks about is that the biblical theology of marriage is so different than what our, our culture this day and age tells us about marriage. And it's kind of crazy and alarming to see the kind of harm that's done to marriage now by romanticism and idealism. And the main reason why most marriages fail is because of wildly unrealistic expectations. And many of us make the same exact mistake with community, specifically Jesus community. And Because it makes sense, but we have really high expectations, right? We have way higher expectations for community done in Jesus' way as opposed to community done in CrossFit or Pokemon Go. And as with marriage, people with community tend to either wait around for the perfect fit, that soulmate, and it never comes because it's either a myth or they bounce from community to community, from one relationship to the next, from one church to the next, in search of ideal community, which is a myth. It's not a reality. You're like, man, 
If I can just find that perfect small group, if I can just find the church community where I feel completely and fully accepted, it doesn't exist, okay? Ask any pastor. Like, we've probably attended way more churches than you guys have. That is not a thing. The third obstacle, okay? Third obstacle. Okay, so, if, sorry, if you're like me, if you're idealistic by nature, if you're a perfectionist, if you're really optimistic, it's really easy to reject reality and hold out for something more, something better, something ideal. Don't do that. Third obstacle, which I think is maybe the main struggle we can all t- relate to, is we're scared. Okay, it's fear. And I'm not just talking about those of us who are introverted and have social anxiety, and this church is ginormous, and where do you sit at potluck? <sighs> and I'm sweating thinking about it. Um, But introversion and extroversion, it has nothing to do with how relational somebody is. It's about how social someone is. And both extroverts and introverts, we're all scared. We all realize on some level, even if we've never been personally hurt by church or a faith community, we still realize that authentic community, our real and true self, Like to put that out there, to expose that about ourselves where there's nowhere to hide uh, is scary. And that's why the two most important parts of a healthy Jesus community are vulnerability and accountability. Okay, we're going to skip this. Skip. Okay, let's look at the next slide. It's in the place of vulnerability and acceptance that where, that's where growth happens. And that's where Jesus does some of his best work. Um, if we look at all the one another commands that are given to us by Jesus in the New Testament, it's all about how to live in community. So for example, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment. Accept. Instruct. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all of these statements here, they're actually just from one passage found in Romans. And um, what's interesting is the New Testament writers, they assume two things about us that I don't think is actually accurate to assume about us as modern American Christians. They assume that number one, that you as a Christian, that you are in community. Not like you're in church on Saturday mornings, but you're in a community where you know and you are known. And number two, they assume that community is really, really messy. Like all of them assume that there are people that are hard to accept because you don't want to accept them. They assume that there are people who you need to honor because frankly, you think they're dumb. And there are people you need to instruct because wow, they really don't have a clue. And there are people you need to bear with and there are people you need to confess to and there are people you need to love. Like someone was telling me like, pastor, how come the Bible doesn't talk about how to deal with like weirdos? It's like, the Bible does. Greet them with a holy kiss. Okay, like, it's because New Testament writers assumed you're in community, it's messy, but it is a place where you are learning to love. And this is really what I want to say this morning, okay? This is my homework for you guys, okay? As scary as it is for all of us, regardless of the obstacles we face, including individualism, idealism, fear, community is where you learn how to follow Jesus and how to love like Jesus. 
our closest relationships in our life, they are the hardest relationships in our life. That is the training ground for love. Dallas Willard, pastor, theologian, wise, spirit-filled man, he used to say that if at some point you make the decision in your heart to become a person of love and you decide to follow Jesus and grow into a person of love, he would say, start with a person you don't know very well. Okay? This is literally what he'd say because he said, it's easier to love someone who you don't know very well and who doesn't know you very well. He would say, start with like a distant colleague at work, someone who's like down the hall, you only see them a few times a week and decide to love them, right? Take them some flowers, write them a nice email, take them out to lunch. Don't start with your roommate. Don't start with your husband or your wife. Don't start with your mom or your daughter because it's so much easier to love people we don't know very well and who don't know us very well. And that's not a bad thing. Our closest relationships are where we get it wrong and where we mess up and where we get called out and where we need help and healing. But those relationships are where we are training and practicing and stretching and like exercising that really weak muscle of ours to become people of love. And Jesus calls any and all of us who are willing and ready to follow him into this school of love. We have small groups here. I don't know if everyone knew that, but we do. Um, if you are like, an, like a young adult to an adult, um, you should talk to David Kim he, or Pastor Richard to get plugged into small groups. If you are in campus ministry, interestingly enough, we are doing a small group launch um, on September 6th, not next Friday, the Friday after, 6th. 5.30 p.m. at the Lee's house, Nicole Lee's house. Um, if you need more information, come talk to me. I don't want you guys to be plugged into small groups. Sorry, youth ministry, small groups, Wednesdays. Talk to Pastor Isaac. I don't want all of our church to be plugged into small groups because like, that's what churches do. I don't care about that. I like really don't care about that. I don't want us to be plugged into small groups because like, I don't, I don't. the only reason is because I genuinely believe that if you are plugged into healthy, real community, Jesus community, your life will be better. Running club every Sunday. I do not go every Sunday, but if that's like how you like connect, that's like a place where you really bear it all. Like you do not look great. Some people do, but most do not look great. Running club every Sunday, seven o'clock, talk to Pastor Richard. Prayer meeting every Saturday, nine, uh, 9.30 in that Sabbath school room. Um, for campus ministry, pass. It starts up again this coming Wednesday. Um, come study at church on Wednesdays. The church is open from 3.30 to 11.45. I am so nice. I stay here the whole time. Come, join us, study here. Like there's free coffee, free snacks, free drinks. Um, And we have prayer meeting every Wednesday, 8 p.m. But do something. Because not only are you not meant to do it alone, you are called, if you choose to follow Jesus, you're saying, I have to do it in community because when Jesus calls you, he doesn't just call you, hey, you secretly come here. 
He's like, hey, you come to me, and then now you're a part of this. You're engaged in this. And yeah, that guy is really weird. He does not know personal boundaries. I know. But love him. And she, she talks a lot. Her stories are not good. She has a lot of stories. Love her. Listen to her stories. This is something that I myself am committing to because I actually thought, and this is like laughable now after I did this study, I actually thought I could come here to Loma Linda and not do community here. I thought I could pastor here. I thought I could disciple here. I thought I could be a part of the staff here, but not be involved in community because I don't want to show you guys stuff. Like, I, like let's have healthy, respectful pastoral congregant distance but that is not the way of Jesus your your homework this week how is Jesus putting on your heart to be involved in community is it small group then you better come to small group launch is it like you know what I need to confess like I actually never confess my sins to anyone Maybe you need to start confessing your sins to someone. Um, there's a pastor. I, I heard this story recently, and I was like, that's beautiful. Uh, this pastor, who's in his like, 60s, every morning at 6.30, he has a standing phone appointment with his best friend from college, also a pastor. For the first five minutes, they confess sins to each other. Every single morning. That's amazing. Maybe what you're being asked to do is just stop being so judgmental like yeah some of the people here they're whack we get it okay but like you're kind of whack sometimes too like Jesus said I didn't come here for the healthy I came for the sick and I imagine Matthew and his friends to be like uh Jesus um that's kind of rude like you're in my house you're eating my food and are you saying that we're sick and Jesus is like Matthew You're a tax collector. You're sick, okay? There's something wrong with you. And the thing is, it's like, guys, Loma Linda, come on. You're sick. That's okay. He still calls you to follow him. He still asks Matthew to join his community knowing, and he's asking you to join the community because without community, you cannot grow. And I really, really want us to grow. And I really, really want to grow. And so I'm committing to this, and I hope you guys will too. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we can't do community Um, we can't follow you without community and we also can't do community without following you Um, it's a catch 22 and so even though we're all sick here even though we are scared and even though we have idealistic perspectives of what community is supposed to be even though um, our culture tells us that it's all about individualism show us the Jesus way open our eyes to the truth that community is found 
in your presence. And then in your presence, we're real with who we are. We're vulnerable. We're authentic. We hold each other accountable. We confess to each other. And in these moments, as we pray for each other, as we see each other grow, transformation occurs and you're able to do things in our life that you were not able to do before. May we not be a church of people. May we be a church of community. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.